This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The train to Denver International Airport starts next week. It's the first of four rail lines opening this year in the metro area, none of which will go to Boulder and Longmont, even though residents there have paid hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes for rail service. It'll happen eventually, according to RTD, but it could be 20 years or more. Nate Curry is spokesman for the agency, and Karen Banker leads a citizen effort to get the rail line finished. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Thank Ryan. You. So, Nate, does RTD promise the rail line to Louisville, Boulder, and Longmont will be finished eventually? We promise. Yeah, we're legally bound and required to build it. And we're excited to uh, get to the point where we can. It's a part of the Fast Tracks program, and and there's no intention of not building the rail. All right. But 20 years or more, that's quite a timeline. I think or more is more appropriate. Uh, right now, our, our, our time horizon is 2042 is when we would uh, have availability. But having said that, that's that's thinking that everything will stay the same through that time period. Five years ago, we had no financing for the rail lines that are opening up this year. So who knows what will happen in the future? I think it's highly doubtful that uh, things will stay static through 2042. That is to say it could be beyond that. It could be before that. Before that. Before okay. That. So you say that that strikes an optimistic chord. When was the original hope to have that corridor built that went into Boulder County? You know, I believe that all of the Fast Tracks program was scheduled to be built out by next year. 2017. Yeah, by next that year, 2017. By yeah. 2017. So. Northwest Rail Line was supposed to be built. Right. Those are the time horizons. And it sounds like, Nate, RTD just doesn't have the money at this point. These rail lines are funded by a sales tax increase that voters agreed to in 2004. But revenues came in way below what RTD forecast in the mid-2000s. And the agency was left with a $2 billion funding gap. It was able to build the West Line to Golden, as we know, and the four lines opening this year. Um, But we talked with the RTD board member who represents Boulder and Louisville, and he said the board is looking for other kinds of funding besides the sales tax hike to get the rest of it done. There was the recession, obviously, Nate, and costs went up as well. Mm -hmm. Why on the latter? What what costs went up? Well, construction costs in general went up. I think that uh, the raw materials of building a rail uh, went up tremendously. The other costs that were involved that went up that a lot of people may not understand the context of is is our partnership with the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. That's the only corridor in the entire fast track system that we were never going to build out and fully own ourselves. So we were going to be working with them and leasing um, slots, you could say, along that line. I mean, obviously, if you're going to build a new train line, you have to have somewhere to put it. And this was essentially, uh, in RTD's eyes, the only reasonable corridor, one that was already operating. Yeah, I mean, the distance that that it is to Boulder and Longmont as a corridor uh, is very costly to build out an entire new line. What ended up happening was that as gas prices increased, the a viability of freight went way up. So all of a sudden, those quarters became profitable, very profitable for the railroads, and their cost estimates uh, and calculus also changed on us. That is to say, what they would demand from RTD to use those corridors, that cost went up. Correct. On top of all the raw materials and and then the economic downturn that cost us nearly $1.2 billion in sales tax revenue. All right. Well, rail service is scheduled to open this year to Westminster, Wheat Ridge, and Aurora, Clearly, RTD had to prioritize and choose which rail lines it would work on first. 
Why was this Northwest Corridor again into Boulder County? Why is it last on the list? Well, let's be let's be clear about that. So the line to Westminster or the B line is the first segment of the Northwest Rail. So the Northwest Rail part of it is opening this year. The full rail build out is not. Um, but we could afford to get to that point, and uh, we're again working on that. You know, it's a cost cal- cost estimate. It's a business decision, um, and when there's a downturn in revenue like that, you have to take a look at your budget and say, what can we afford? What's the best for the region? And uh, what's the biggest bang for our bucks? And what was some of the thinking that went into putting this uh, rail line, Northwest Rail, last, prioritizing it last? I think just the cost and then the level of ridership, the distance, and then the challenges that we had with our railroad partners uh, made it very clear that the other rail corridors – it was better to prioritize at that point through them for the for the entire region. So uh, Karen Benker, again, you lead a citizen's effort to get the rail line finished. I also want to say that you're formerly an RTD board member and a former Longmont City Council member. What do you make of the explanations you're hearing from RTD here? Well, I think a lot has changed since they made some of those decisions. The economy has turned around. So while they were trying to decide how to cut back on the Fast Tracks program, um, sales taxes were very low and, and true, construction costs were going up. The recession is over. Um, a lot of things have changed. Sales taxes are going up for cities, for the state, for RTD. Uh, and in addition, you were talking about Burlington Northern Railroad. A lot of things have changed with the railroad also. Um, the en- energy sector uh, is diminishing, and they just recently, Burlington Northern, is in the process of laying off over 4,000 employees across the United States. Which, so uh, I think they're looking for revenue opportunities. So what you're saying is that the costs of using that corridor might uh, have gone down So. And I think they're also interested in talking with RTD. Uh, they've they've said several times recently that uh, if we came forward with a definite plan, they would love to work with us. All right. And uh, your group is called Citizens for Finishing Fast Tracks. Yes. What would you say is your level of frustration, given the time horizons we talked about at, at, at the beginning? Well, thank you. When when Fast Tracks was being um, touted uh, back in 2003, 2004, um, it dealt with the tax increase. And so Boulder County, Longmont, the city of Longmont, uh, voters in Boulder County, we all passed it with large margins. And so we taxed ourselves. We've already paid RTD $260 million over the past 11 years. Uh, and we would like to have our rail line built uh, in the near future. We're now asking RTD to build it within the next 10 years and not wait until 2042. Is that a reasonable timeline, Nate, in RTD's eyes? Uh, at this point, no, it's not. I think it's unrealistic to expect that we could uh, to build that out. We just don't simply have the funds to do so. So $260 million in taxes paid out of Boulder County. In Broomfield County. In Broomfield County as yes. well. That's right. That's right. Of a project that's, part of this. that's almost $1.5 billion. So explain to listeners what has happened to that money. Sure. Has it gone to pay for other projects? Does that stay in the counties in which the tax was assessed? Right. So there are, it's important to, to acknowledge that the Fast Tracks uh, tax that is collected goes only to Fast Tracks projects. Uh, now, is it earmarked that only folks in Highlands Ranch uh, gets their, their extension? No, it's not. Uh, Denver County uh, does not just stay in Denver County. It's the region and it's the district as a whole. So I, I would I would posit that 
the dollars that are coming in regionally, including the communities that we're talking about, have benefited uh, the University of Colorado A-Line that's about to open up next week, next connecting week, yeah, the, to airport the airport. To the, and that's a huge benefit. You know, the downtown area uh, of Denver itself, uh, Union Station, has become an amazing hub and region that is attracting new business. $2 billion worth of investment. You know, that's good for the entire region, not just that neighborhood. Do you agree, Karen? Do you feel that benefit as a taxpayer? Um, I do understand why RTD has to build the backbone and the infrastructure of the rail system. However, you can't forget Boulder County and Broomfield County. Um, We're important to the entire region. We need the economic development that rail brings um, because there's no doubt whatsoever that if you have rail line in your community and you have a rail stop, it's going to bring development and it's going to bring jobs. So we're patient very patient. We've been waiting for RTD to come and give us a better date than 2042. <laughs> um, we uh, we have been looking at the RTD books. We've met with the CFO of RTD, and quite frankly, their their revenue forecasts are looking quite rosy. Things are turning around. They still have $150 million of bonds from the original Fast Tracks uh, bonding effort that is unencumbered, which could go toward this project. Um, there have been some changes at the federal level. There's a new federal transportation plan. There's a small start program. Uh, bonds. With monies attached, you're saying? Yes. Okay, you, so we would have to apply. It's a competitive federal grant. Okay. So there's there could be a cobbling together of, yes. of various financial yes. sources, you're saying. Nate, I want you to respond to something Karen just said, which yeah. is the notion that some in Boulder, and as you mentioned, Broomfield counties, might feel a bit forgotten by RTD. Do you think that's true? Is uh, that the full picture? Well, I think that the, the feeling is there, certainly. And um, – uh, my our message to that is, uh, you know, we we uh, have not forgotten Boulder, Broomfield counties. Are there uh, examples of work RTD has done? Sure, we've just opened up at the beginning of this year the first of five new transit lines, which is the Flatiron Flyer. And while it's not rail, this is bus. It's bus rapid transit, and it's part of the Fast Tracks program where their tax dollars have gone and invested in a much higher level of service that they're able to get into the downtown area directly from Boulder. It was a a combined project with CDOT to where we you know, widen this, the U.S. 36 corridor and, and the 15-minute frequencies uh, often of those, those buses with a brand new fleet uh, have, have proven to be very popular. In fact, just last week, we, we released data that uh, 46% above our projected uh, ridership uh, is actually what's happened this first quarter. That is to say these buses have proven even more popular than RTD yeah, anticipated. We're, we're, we're really tickled about it. And so, you know, the, the citizens of Boulder, Boulder County, Broomfield, particularly that have these stations, they're responding quite well to the products that we're offering from Fast Tracks. Is it rail? No. Uh, But again, we will be building out the full beeline when we can. We have a map at cprnews.org, a video as well that RTD made several years ago explaining where the beeline is supposed to go. And we are talking about new transit lines opening in Metro Denver this year. And one in particular that will not fully open. It will eventually run up to Boulder and Longmont, according to RGD spokesman Nate Curry, who joins us. And taxpayers from around the metro area have paid into this transit fund for about a decade. That includes Karen Benker, who's also with us. She leads a citizen effort encouraging RTD to finish Northwest's line sooner than its 2042 timeline. Okay, there's this fundamental question about whether rail is the way to go. Mm -hmm. We've talked about bus and its advantages and its popularity. 
Is there a fixation in some ways, Karen, on rail that's unnecessary here? No, I feel that rail is just a better investment. You're separated from the road. So if, uh, for example, just a few weeks ago, US 36 closed down because of the snowstorm that we had. Uh, Rail doesn't necessarily close when it snows. Uh, If there's an accident on the road, uh, you can still go forward with the rail line. And then it's the economic development opportunities that it brings. We also need a seamless transportation system in the Denver metro area. I don't think it's fair that people can ride rail all across the metro area and then have to get off rail and transfer to a bus with a bus schedule, trying to figure out where it's going to take them and where they're going to go. But is there a point at which rail becomes so expensive that it becomes impractical? You know, I would disagree with that. Um, The Northwest Rail Line is comparable in cost to all the other rail lines that have been built. Um, The numbers that Nate has been talking about are inflated numbers. The most recent number was $1.1 billion. It's a 41-mile rail line. Only six miles are being built right now, part of the Arvada Gold Line. So per cost, per mile, we're pretty competitive. All right. You cited a few reasons why you prefer rail to bus. One of them was economic development. I'm assuming that that means transit-oriented development, businesses and housing that pop up around transit. We've seen this along light rail corridors, for instance, that are walkable, as you say. Nate, is there any evidence that that can't happen around bus? No. As a matter of fact, we do see that uh, our bus rapid transit stations are are experiencing an influx of investment as well along the U.S. 36 corridor. And you see that in neighboring uh, peer peer systems like UTA out in Salt Lake and and in some of the East Coast facilities as well. One thing that I will say, uh, you know, RTD actually is working with Burlington Northern Santa Fe as well on this. The challenge, again, is we don't own that corridor, so we have no real say as far as what goes on around land use policy. Why, why didn't RTD lock in a price with BNSF before it went to voters asking for tax money? Well, I'll turn that around. Why would not Why would BNSF want to sign a contract with us before they knew we had voter money so committed? Did, so uh-huh. from, from a business perspective, on their end, it didn't make any sense to commit to anything. Is it the only corridor along the BNSF lines to expand the Northwest Rail? Uh, it is what was voted on in 2004 and what we are obligated by law to do. Karen, do you see alternatives for its placement? There can be. There's been some discussion. But if we were to go with another rail route and, and there's one other option using the UP, you're not going to be hitting all the cities. And I think U- what, Union Pacific. Union mm-hmm. Pacific, uh-huh. yes. Um, what you want to do with rail is to be able to weave through a city so that people can walk to a rail station. And so you want to try to hit as many cities in Broomfield, Westminster, and Boulder counties as possible. Nate, uh, assuming this line to Longmont and Boulder is built, do you think it's the last rail line you'd imagine RTD ever built? Well, as far as large capital projects, uh, you know, I, I can't commit to that right now. But I think that largely our system will have been built out at that point once Fast Tracks is done. There may be a few other opportunities for rail. But the next step for us is optimizing the system and making sure that people can overcome that first and last mile problem, that solution of how do they actually access the rail. And I suppose this leads to the question of getting beyond rail and bus to things that are a bit more futuristic. I'm thinking of Elon Musk's Hyperloop or mm. hireable driverless cars or something like Skytran uh, that moves pods along an elevated track. Right. That's that's being tested, I think, in Baltimore. Right. And I think you bring up a great point with that. And that's why I say it's not going to be static between now and 2042. The disruptive technology that we're experiencing or about to experience will provide new opportunities for RTD, not just with the Northwest Rail Corridor and the finishing of the B-Line, but in the way we move around the region. And so uh, I think 
holding holding that storyline of it's going to be till 2042. That's what the reality is today. But who knows in five years what technologies will be available for us to explore. Does that result in an eye roll from you, Karen? <laughs> well, about- I think um, what, what you need to keep in mind is you still need transportation corridors. And so what the Burlington Northern Rail Line does, the Northwest Corridor does, it provides you another corridor. You're not always relying on highways. So does it matter if there's a locomotive that's, that's moving you along the Northwest Rail corridor, or if there's some other technology in mm-hmm. the next 20 years it comes up, you can still use that corridor. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're focused on as opposed to whatever the pod is that moves you along the corridor. Correct. Um, uh, just to check on this, RTD would have to ask voters permission to not build the rail line. That's correct. Is that at all under consideration? No, it's not. No. For the Northwest corridor. No, and that's, imp- that's an important nuance is is – the voters are expecting this and have passed it, and we're obligated by law to do so. Any deviation from that would have to go back for voter approval, and that's just not in the cards. We don't want to do that, and we don't need to do that. But I think it also has to be in our lifetime. I mean, we're now talking 20, 25 years away, and when we voted on this, we were told that the rail was going to come right around 2017. So that's a, that's a considerable difference in terms of dates. I agree with that. I think that that uh, the confidence that the nation has in the Denver region right now shows in the efforts that we have with the Eagle public-private partnership that's opening this year in that it's the largest and only of its kind that we have private investment coming in along with federal monies along with our TD money that have allowed us to open up three rail lines this year. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Nate Curry, spokesman for RTD. Karen Banker is co-founder of Citizens for Finishing Fast Tracks, and they talk to us about expanding rail service to Boulder County and Broomfield. The train between Union Station and DIA starts next week. Coming up, honoring pioneers of 20th century music in Colorado, including Glenn Miller and Lenny Garrett. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. These days, the name Billy Murray probably doesn't ring a bell, but he was a musical superstar in the early 1900s. Murray was known as the Denver Nightingale, and he made hundreds of recordings. You're a grand old rag, you're a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may you wave. You're the emblem of the land I love, the home of the free and the brave. Well, on Saturday night, Murray will be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, along with five other 20th century pioneers. Some of them are very much alive, including longtime Denver singer and cabaret owner Lanny Garrett, who will perform at the concert. Here to talk about these inductees is G. Brown, the Hall of Fame's director. G, welcome back to the program. How are you, Ryan? I'm good. Tell us more about Billy, not Bill, Billy Murray. Yeah, we'll skip the Saturday Night Live years. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) Billy raised in Denver and uh, wanted to get into show business, did the vaudeville circuit, wound up in New York right when phonography was being invented. Phonography, yes, recording. recording, uh, Thomas Edison had invented the phonograph at that juncture, and Billy was literally the first recording artist, the guy to make a living from singing and selling records. Uh, There weren't the major labels at the time. He recorded for anyone who would have him, but uh, very um, interesting technical ability. You heard him sing there. It's not what we think of as a 
classically trained voice, uh, not a great singer per se, but his skill was to be able to sing loudly and precisely because in those days, the electronic means of recording hadn't been invented yet. They were singing through horns, not through microphones. So literally, his voice had to move the needle to cut into the groove directly. And that's the, um, that was his skill. There's a time in each year that we always hold dear Good old summertime With the birds and the breezes and sweet scented breezes Good old summertime That is a track from 1902 in the good old summertime And he um, got his start really in Denver Yes, just a, a showbiz kid running the streets of downtown and uh, singing with his neighborhood pals till he joined a traveling minstrel show. And that's what eventually took him to New York and launched his career. One of the labels uh, asked him how he wanted to be marketed. It was done through catalogs at the time. And he suggested the Rocky Mountain Canary, which was slang for a donkey uh, in that era, and being oh, a self-effacing time. And the label decided that the Denver Nightingale was probably a better choice. The Denver Nightingale. But something of the like an op- opposite of the crooner. You know, in many yes. ways. Once he, uh, once the microphone was invented, he adopted a crooning style because ah. he didn't have to sing so sharply, if you will. He adapted with the technology then. All right. Another pioneer you'll honor is Elizabeth Spencer. A recording from 1918, Silver Threads Among the Gold. Tell us about Elizabeth Spencer. Elizabeth's stepfather was Colonel William Gilpin, who was the first governor of the territory of Colorado back in 1861. Gilpin County? Gilpin Street, all of the Gilpin stuff in in our state. And Elizabeth, then a society lady and was classically trained, uh, learned how to play uh, piano, violin, did minstrel and uh, more vaudeville shows here in the area, led to some touring Broadway productions. And she wound up in New York where she was discovered and signed by Thomas Edison, ah. the inventor of the phonograph, and Edison was in love with her soprano. He studied its intonations and vibrations and uh, made her the premier vocalist uh, for uh, his recorded product. She died in 1935. I didn't realize Thomas Edison signed people, G. Well, uh, to demonstrate his wares yeah. in, in the case of Elizabeth, what he did was called tone test tour. It was the is it live or is it Memorex of its time. He would send her out to the largest auditoriums across the country uh, to promote his diamond discs, which were uh, discs. The first, he had to get into that arena instead of the early wax cylinders. And Elizabeth would sing, the lights would dim, and then the recordings would start up and they had to guess where she ended and the recording started up to demonstrate the superior audio qualities of Edison's diamond discs. Oh, fascinating. Uh, The next inductee was known as the King of Jazz, although his music wasn't terribly jazzy. Who was Paul Whiteman? Paul Whiteman was the biggest name in show business in 1920 uh, through 1930, and uh, on both sides of that, had quite the career. His father was Wilberforce Whiteman, not a name you hear all that often. That's true. Uh, I only know the college by that name. Exactly. Wilberforce... uh, 
was the superintendent of music for the Denver Public School System, uh, the first gentleman to get an orchestra into a school. Paul attended East High School, uh, played first chair viola with the Denver Symphony Orchestra uh, during his teen years when he was 18 and graduated, headed to the West Coast, started his own orchestra, went east, and became uh, the first dance orchestra leader. Everything was pretty much vaudeville before then, but he had a touring ensemble of 30-plus people, the first brass section, the first reed section. Lots of firsts, including the first to record George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. This was before United used <laughs> that theme. Uh, he wound up, I think, retiring in Denver. Uh, actually, uh, back east. Oh, back um, east. He, okay. He was in Florida and uh, up in the New York area. Uh, Paul, just uh, an amazing story. Did everything uh, after the dance orchestra years. I went on to do television, radio, uh, but really uh, an amazing band leader. Made sure his musicians were paid and the first to get that large of an ensemble on the road. Which wouldn't have been cheap, you know. No. Uh, that is Paul Whiteman, and he is one of the 20th century pioneers being inducted uh, into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. We're talking about them right now with G. Brown, who leads the Hall of Fame. Certainly, one of Colorado's best-known mu- musical pioneers was Glenn Miller, the big band leader from the 40s. <laughs> Oh, that piece has some real attitude. Oh. That's Tuxedo Junction, I think. Fantastic arrangements. That's yeah. the thing to appreciate there. And Miller died at the height of his fame. Yes. Uh, Glenn was born in Iowa. His family was poor. They migrated westward. They wound up in Fort Morgan, Colorado. That's where he attended high school and then went to the University of Colorado for two years, Uh, spent most of his time outside of class playing in bands and eventually uh, decided to pursue his career as a trombonist and arranger and worked with the Dorsey brothers, a lot of the greats of the era, but then finally started his band, uh, the biggest big band of the swing era. And then uh, when World War II broke out, wanted to be part of the war effort and joined the army at uh, age 38, you know, married, bad eyesight, but uh, he did what he way. could. He did what he could, which was form uh, the mo- most famous service band in Armed Forces history, went over, played uh, uh, so many shows for the troops in the European theater. And then in December of 1944, his plane uh, went down in the English Channel. Major Glenn Miller, the well-known American band leader, is reported missing. He left England by air for Paris nine days ago. Major Glenn Miller came over from the States early this year to direct the American band of the AEF, which has often been heard playing in the Allied Expeditionary Forces program of the BBC. And the mystery continues still today exactly what happened to the aircraft that he was in. Uh, Tell us about another of the honorees, Max Morath. 
Max is Mr. Ragtime, and mm. I am pleased to report that Max will be joining us at the event. He Lovely. lives in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, I'm not sure. No, I know why. <laughs> His wife is from there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, Max, 89 years young, and it'll be such a thrill to have him. Max grew up in Colorado Springs, uh, went to Colorado College, did melodrama and musical theater in the 50s, and then in 19... 19- 59 came up to KRMA channel six here in Denver, the nascent years of public television. It was called NET back then before PBS national educational television. KRMA had great facilities at the time and Max recorded a series of half hour programs about ragtime music, his passion. Uh, 26 of them, the ragtime era and turn of the century are now considered classics of the genre. And Max was not just a singer, uh, or piano player. He was an entertainer, raconteur, humorist, uh, gave the presentation of the social mores and politics of the gay 90s as well as the music. Interesting. So an educator in many ways. He is an educator. And why don't we listen to Max Morath performing Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag? Last but not least, Lanny Garrett will be honored as a 20th century pioneer. Uh, she's been pre- performing in – I yes, go well, ahead. Well, I, I, I got to protect Lanny. I, I've been feeling so guilty that uh, she gets lumped in with 20th century right, pioneers. Right, exactly. She's, she's, <laughs> she's, you know, she's very much in the 21st century as well. And it's a woman's right not to be lumped in with all those uh, really old people because um, <laughs> Lanny's not, not in that category. She, though um, – has done so much for the Denver entertainment scene and does so many fantastic shows, including a big band show over the years. And uh, this was the opportunity to honor Lanny with the Glenn Miller Orchestra performing at our event to honor Glenn Miller, to have her and her ensemble of fantastic musicians uh, pay tribute to them as well. Because the Glenn Miller Orchestra continues the low these many years uh, later. And uh, let me say that uh, Lanny Garrett owns Lanny's Clock Tower Cabaret in the old DNF Tower mm-hmm. on the 16th Street Mall. What makes her a 20th and 21st century pioneer? She is just a... She is just a Colorado Music Hall of Fame inductee, uh, paying tribute to those pioneers. She stands on her own as just a vibrant and uh, precious commodity on our musical scene. She's crafting a show to pay tribute to these pioneers that's going to knock people's socks off. Let's go out with uh, Lanny Garrett and her swinging big band, Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby. Thanks, G. Thank you, Warren. G. Brown directs the Colorado Music Hall of Fame, which is located at the Trading Post at Red Rocks Amphitheater. Saturday's concert at CU's Glenn Miller Ballroom honors 6th, 20th, and as we heard, 21st century musical pioneers. Up next, a bolder man has a novel way to teach kids about robotics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Whoa! 
Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What kind of toy would prepare kids to work with robots? You can find one possible answer in the Robot Revolution exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Near the exit, there's a table with an array of colored blocks. They're called cubelets, and they're made in Boulder. Brian Hostedler is with the museum. The cubelets are basically modular bits of robot. Each section, each little cube that you have, not only has a physical presence, it does something, or it has a physical sensor, or it has a battery. The blocks got Jordan Nealon's attention. He's a ninth grader who was on a field trip from Thornton. I'm just going to try to make a little car. But he realized quickly that each block is specialized. This looks like a light, but this one's what I'm starting to wonder. Rotator. What does the rotator do? Probably rotates a piece. Then he went for other blocks. Light blocks, light sensor blocks, blocks with knobs. Fiddle around. That's how you do it. Best way to do things. Fiddle around. See what you get. And what he got was a tool that measures lights. One block reads light levels. Another displays them. Neeland imagined it could help people find sunny spots in their gardens. In all, it took him about seven minutes. Eric Schweikart is inventor of cubelets. He leads Modular Robotics in Boulder, which develops and markets the toy. And uh, Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here. Okay, the second you make play about something more than play, right, trying to teach a lesson, don't you ruin the fun. Depends what you tell kids. Uh, Depends if you tell them they're being educational or not. With modular robotics, a bunch of the things that we try and do with cubelets are a bit uh, subversive, maybe. Subversive? Yeah. So think about playing with Legos. When you play with Legos, you're not learning about friction, structure, and shape. But you're gaining these intuitions by playing so that later on when you get to physics – the Greek letters and everything sort of makes sense. You understand how things are going to react, and the Greek letters are just describing behavior that you're familiar with. When we're playing with cubelets, we're not trying to teach kids about networking or inputs or outputs or control or feedback or loops or recursion, but we're trying to give them uh, the ability, the muscle memory, the intuitions about how these things work so that when they encounter them later on in life, it sort of makes sense. Them being the, these concepts, the concepts that they represent and the actions that they do because they, they sense, you say, they think, they act. You've brought some cubelets with you. Yeah, I did. And sensing and thinking and acting is basically our working definition of robotics. Um, people can argue for hours about what's a robot, what do robots do. And for us, robot, robots are any devices that sense, that have inputs, that think, that do planning or processing, and that act. Okay. So they are plastic with it looks like metal in the middle. And I could connect how many of these together? You can connect as many as you want. They're just basically simple robot blocks. So here I've got a couple of them. I brought a kit of 12 with me, okay. uh, the basic standard kit, uh, and an additional speaker cubelet because we're on the radio and audio works better on the radio than lots of visual stuff. Okay. We'll demonstrate that. So here I've got three cubelets. I've got a blue-gray one that's a battery block with a USB port, and I'll click it onto a speaker cubelet. And nothing happens now because we have a thinking cubelet and an act cubelet, but no sensing. So mm. I've got this infrared distance sensor, and I'll snap that on. Now nothing's happening as well because the infrared distance sensor is not detecting anything. But as it starts to detect my hand, 
it sends data values to its neighbor, the speaker cubelet, and the speaker cubelet acts upon that data. And these three combined, you have so I have a fourth I can hand you. What are you going to do with it? Uh, well, so this one's an example of a thinking cubelet. It's a pink inverse cubelet. And the behavior we had before was when the distant sensor detects something, it sends a high value to its neighbor and the speaker block makes beeping noises. Yeah. Now I'll take the inverse block and put it in between and the behavior is reversed. Now when it doesn't detect anything, there's a lot of beeping. And as I bring my hand closer... Ah, you are stopping the sound in that case. And in this combination, you've taught a child about the energy, the fuel that is going to power the robot, uh, the thing the robot is going to detect, how it's going to detect it, and then how it's going to alert you. Uh, you are an architect by training. Indeed. Yeah. How, how does uh, architecture lead to this kind of thinking? Uh, a lot of people think that's really incongruous, but this is basically building, right? These are building blocks, and these are modern building blocks with robotic stuff inside of them. Um, their genesis actually came out of architecture. I was working in Boulder on a bunch of mixed-use architecture projects, and work as a junior-level architect is really awful. Usually. And mixed use meaning you live there, you might work there, there might be shops and, you know, businesses and residents. Exactly. Like uh, Main Street North and Boulder and examples like that. Uh, I've been working as an architect for about seven years after school, sitting behind three monitors, uh, gradually getting carpal tunnel syndrome until eventually I threw up my hands and thought there has to be some sort of better way for creative people to interact with computation than always sitting behind monitors, mice, and keyboards drawing things on a screen. So the genesis of Cubelets was sort of thinking about digital clay, digital type construction materials. Digital clay. That's yeah. a cool concept. Wouldn't it be? These are a little higher resolution or I guess lower resolution than clay. So you can't quite sculpt with them. They're 40 millimeters. Um, but tools, physical, tangible tools that enable creative people to interact with computation without always having to sit behind a screen, I think can be very valuable. And do you think that that's reflected in STEM education today? So science, technology, engineering, and math, this over-reliance perhaps on, I don't know, things that aren't fun enough or... <laughs> I do. Uh, you know, screens are wonderful because hardware is hard. Building custom hardware is hard. So now that we have supercomputers in our pocket, it's much easier to create little software applications that run on the phone or that run on Chromebooks or iPads that people have in schools. It's very difficult and resource challenging and time challenging to create new physical hardware. Yeah, tactile experiences become difficult in that regard. Indeed. And so you wanted to create the tactile. Uh, are these just for, I don't know, wealthy Kids of wealthy families, you know, who can afford to kind of nerd out. They're definitely for those people, uh, but they're also in play in lots and lots of science museums, schools, summer camps, places like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science Robot Revolution, and in thousands and thousands of schools all over the world. Have kids surprised you putting them together? Have they done things you didn't anticipate that these robots could do? Oh, yeah, all over the place. Kids are insane, especially yeah. when kids get access to like, you know, a lot of schools like St. Vrain Valley School, Flatirons Elementary. We have thousands and thousands of cubelets in those schools, and when kids get access to a huge pile and start making giant complicated constructions that are a little more complicated than we might have even imagined, they can build some crazy stuff. What have you seen them build? I like uh, seeing some of the grids that they make of LEDs. Uh, so we have uh, flashlight cubelets and they can interact with all of their neighbors and depending on how you put them together, you can make a wall of cubelets that responds to your touch. You can make a wall of cubelets that reacts back to you based on distance sensors. Thanks so much for being with us. 
My pleasure. Eric Schweikart is the inventor of robot construction kits for kids of all ages, I suppose, called Cubelets. His company, Modular Robotics, is based in Boulder. Cubelets are part of Robot Revolution at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, which goes through August 7th. And we'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's a shortage of special kinds of doctors and nurses, ones who care for patients who are either chronically ill or near death. These providers practice what's called palliative care, and in the coming decade, experts say the shortage will get worse. The hope is to relieve the pain with a first-in-the-nation master's degree at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. The program is scheduled to launch this summer. Dr. Amos Bailey specializes in palliative care at Anschutz. He told CPR's Nathan Heffel earlier this year, there's friction between physicians who focus mainly on fixing a health problem and palliative care doctors who emphasize comfort. If you think about it historically... In 1955, the nascent ICU was formed in the United States, and it basically was during the polio epidemic and the iron lungs, and we went from a place where people, you know, when people died, we didn't have resuscitation to a place where if you died, unless you opted out of resuscitation, you got resuscitated. So people like... um, Kubler-Ross in 1968 writes her book uh, On Death and Dying, and you have people um, like Dame Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern hospice movement in England, starts St. Christopher's Hospice in 1967. And what you saw was almost this idea of we're rescuing people from this increasingly technological, not comforting medical system and bringing them, you know, to their home and have the comfort of not being, you know, in a hospital setting. So there seems there was historically some conflict there. There's this tension between the medical sciences wanting to basically fix everything and a group of people who are saying, you know, Death and is part of the natural course of life, and you know these machines are helpful in some situations, but in other situations, they may be causing unnecessary suffering. And so there was this kind of dichotomy about this. So explain for our listeners what palliative care is and why it's important. So palliative care is a group of providers, usually nurses, physicians, uh, social work, uh, pastoral care, other people who are uh, working with patients and family, dealing with very difficult illnesses. And we concentrate on things like pain and symptom management, but we also know that suffering and distress are made worse by psychological, spiritual, social uh, problems that come with chronic illness, and you need to be addressing all of these at the same time. Are there any national standards right now for palliative care providers? Nurses have taken the lead in palliative care going way back to the 1970s. 
For physicians, it's only been recently that there's been a recognized specialty in palliative medicine. And there's uh, about 300 to 350 people nationally training each year as physicians in palliative medicine. It doesn't seem like a lot being trained every year. No, it's actually a relatively small number. And and the number of nurses in specialty training is also relatively small. I would estimate probably less than 500 Although there are a lot of nurses and physicians who are working at least part of their practice in palliative care, but a lot of us, like myself, were self-trained. So it is very, it is very different. In the last 10, 15 years, there's been an effort to improve the, and integrate palliative care into the training of physicians and nurses and all kinds of healthcare workers so that people have basic knowledge. However, specialty care for more complex problems is really limited. Well, shouldn't a primary care provider or, or, a, or a specialist already be managing a patient's overall pain? Well, in many times they do, but sometimes we think, well, you know, if we treat the disease, if we treat the heart failure, then the symptoms go away. And they may go away for a while, but as the heart failure gets worse, the symptoms recur. And so if you're just concentrated on disease, then you're still going to have untreated symptoms. So the ideal is to treat symptoms and to use the best of modern medicine to control, you know, illness. And you'll get the best outcome when you do these two things. Dr. Bailey, is the role of palliative care doctors then to provide balance in a patient's overall care? I mean, if you're so short of breath when your mental health provider comes to see you, you can't talk to him or her, you're not going to get much out of it. If you're in so much pain when your social worker comes to see you that you're distracted, you're not really going to benefit from that. And for different people, it may be, you know, I have great social support. You know, I have lots of uh, brothers and sisters and friends and family, and everyone is rallying around, and, you know, my insurance is covering things, and, you know, I am really got it down pretty pat here. But I really am struggling with why is this happening to me. I'm really depressed and sad. So you can see that for any one person— it will be very different. Your field then would focus on these areas and letting the specialist focus on fixing the lung or fixing the heart or, or curing the cancer. And actually, uh, there's some evidence that that's actually what patients want, that sometimes patients and family are reluctant to talk about these kinds of things with you know their oncologist or their you know pulmonologist or their liver specialist because they're like, we want that person to focus on fixing our cancer, on you know getting us to a liver transplant. And if I distract them by um, talking about these other problems that I'm having, you know they're distracted from this really important task. Dr. Bailey, are other schools looking at creating a master's program similar to yours in, in palliative care? There are some um, places around the country, including here at the University of Colorado, Anschutz Medical Campus, where the College of Nursing has had a certificate program in palliative care. It's been, you know, for nurses, but we do know that there are a couple of other 
of these nurse certificate programs who in the last year or so have moved to become interprofessional, meaning allowing other kinds of professionals to enroll like physicians and PAs. It's too early to say how well that's working out. We don't know of any group that's trying to uh, start a degree, but we want to take people to a level where they can be not only an excellent provider, but a leader for palliative care in their community. That is Dr. Amos Bailey, oncologist and palliative care provider at the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. He spoke with Nathan Heffel in January. The first students arrive for the master's program in palliative care at the end of the summer. that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. The newsroom is on Facebook, CPR News. Or reach out through our website, where you can email us your suggestions, your feedback. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.